Maine is known for its rocky coastline, beautiful forests, and brutal winters. It's the home of Stephen King, Alan's Coffee Brandy, and the Best Lobster. To the people who come from away, it's a vacation. But to those of us who live here, it's the way life should be. Welcome to Vacationland. My name is AJ, and I will be your guide through the history and mysteries of Maine. Hi everyone. Yes, this episode was supposed to be out last week. If you follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram, you probably saw my update. Unfortunately, towards the end of last week, my health kind of plummeted. The unfortunate side of trying to work while disabled. I am having surgery this week, so hopefully that will fix one issue, but it does kind of muck up working on this podcast. I had initially planned for 13 episodes for the season, but it looks like we're going to stop short at 11. I will take a, hopefully, brief hiatus. I want to get ahead on episodes so that next season has a more consistent posting schedule and work on bonus content for Patreon. Did you know I have a Patreon? <laughs> no? You can find it at patreon.com slash podcasts. I think that's everything. Now on to the episode. Jonathan Knight and his wife, Afia, lived in Plymouth, Maine. They grew their family, having several children together, but the one of particular note was their daughter, Mary. Mary stayed with her family until the age of 20, when a young farmer by the name of Willis Bean caught her eye. Willis was from the nearby town of Dixmont, and the couple settled there and had three children, Gracie, Alice, and Mabel. The little family seemed happy enough. One day, Willis approached his wife and told her that he had plans to become a physician. Mary encouraged her husband's dream and even planned to join him. It was easy enough to become a physician in the 1880s, after all. But the family was poor, and they had three infant children to care for. These obstacles were enough to worry young Mary. So one day, when a neighbor stopped by and found little Gracie dead in her bed, he informed Mary of the death. She rather matter-of-factly told him that she was aware, and in fact the young girl had passed half an hour ago. Strangely, there was no investigation into the child's death, but the town was certain the girl had been murdered by her mother. Gracie may have been the first to go, but she certainly wasn't the last. Over the course of the next two years, Alice and Mabel would follow their sister to the grave. Mysterious stomach pains led them to the Plymouth Cemetery. Much like Gracie, their deaths were never investigated, and soon it seemed that people forgot about them. Willis continued his pursuit of a medical career undeterred by his daughter's deaths. He enrolled in a suspicious institute that sold diplomas for $25 apiece. Unfortunately for him, the state soon passed a law that prohibited the sale of fake diplomas, and right before Willis was about to get his, too. So the couple set their sights on an institute in Ohio to fulfill their dreams. Before leaving, however, Willis told his parents that he wanted to buy a farm in Maine, 
which he would live on when he returned to the state. His parents, apparently happy to support their son and his wife, invested all the money they had available into this farm. With the land purchased, Willis entrusted the mortgage to his father, but for whatever reason this transaction was never recorded. Willis and Mary then borrowed roughly $200 and left for their new lives in Ohio. A short time later, in January of 1888, a letter arrived at the home of Willis's parents. It claimed that Willis had died mysteriously, struck down by a stomach pain similar to his children. Mary returned shortly after to stay with her in-laws. The mortgage that Willis had entrusted to his parents went missing shortly after the grieving widow's return. But Mary had the deed for the farm, which meant she owned it, and so she sold it for $2,000. Mary later married George H. Taylor of Dixmont. He was a laborer at one of the mills in Lewiston, and the couple soon moved there to live. George was also a member of the Independent Order of Oddfellows. Wikipedia describes it as a non-political and non-sectarian international fraternal order of odd fellowship. Basically, it was a fraternity. As an odd fellow, George would have had a life insurance policy, but he hadn't been paying his dues. Thus, when he died of the same mysterious stomach pain which seemed to strike everyone around Mary, the widow was left high and dry. That is, until the members of the fraternity came together to fund a donation to the grieving widow of several hundred dollars. Mary wasn't single long, though. She soon married another man, Elias Cowan. He was a widower and had a son, Willis, eight years old. Elias had deeded his farm to his first wife, and so by main law, their son would inherit the land when he reached his majority. In the meantime, Elias retained the income from the farm. You can probably see where this is going. Shortly after marrying Elias, several farm buildings on the property burned to the ground. Mysteriously, when neighbors arrived to help put out the fires, they found bundles of the family's clothing, dishes, and other valuables ready to be carried out. Rumors of Mary abusing her stepson abounded, but nothing seemed to be done about it. One day, the young boy suffered horrible stomach pains, reportedly from eating green apples. A physician was called to the home and prescribed the boy some medicine. Certain young Willis would recover. Two days later, in agonizing pain, the child died. Elias suffered similar pains, but survived. It took six deaths, two husbands and four children, for Mary to finally be investigated. The young Willis's organs were sent for analysis at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. The results were astonishing. The body contained levels of arsenic high enough to kill a full-grown ox. Mary was quickly arrested for the murder of her stepson and branded the Borgia of Maine. The trial came in 1895. The evidence was extensive, including a witness. A young girl from the neighborhood reported that she saw Mary put a white powder into the child's medicine. The girl wasn't allowed to testify, however, as her father feared for her safety. Despite this, the prosecutor was still able to prove that the amount of arsenic in the body could have only arrived there deliberately. The jury returned with a guilty verdict, and Mary Cowan was convicted of first-degree murder. She was later sentenced in February of 1896 to life in prison to be served at the state prison in Thomaston. Mary wasn't lonely in prison, though. She often conducted interviews with reporters and anyone else who felt inclined to call on her. Mary claimed that she was innocent, even telling one reporter that she had hired a private detective and that he had evidence of her innocence. After serving only two years, 
Her physician argued on her behalf that she be pardoned. Mary's health was failing, and she wanted to die at her home in Dixmont. Despite her poor health, Mary still managed to give birth while she was in prison, but both child and mother would die soon after. Mary was first laid to rest in Etna, where her parents lived, but she was later moved to Sawyer Cemetery in Plymouth, where she was reunited with the family she had killed. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed season one of Vacation Land. This has been so fun for me. I've learned so much about my home state. I hope you'll join me in season two. All sources and transcripts are available at pinetreepodcast.com and click on Vacation Land at the top of the page. Also check out the Misery Machine podcast. I listened to their episode on Mary Cowan and it was great. Music is by Lurker. Check out more of his work at lurker.bandcamp.com and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at VacationLandPod.